It's the PR Week podcast, recorded live in Washington, D.C. at PR Week's Crisis Comms Conference. Crisis comms, I think it's one of the most important skills for any PR professional. You really got to think through, all right, what is the most likely scenario that could happen? And you really need to plan for those. And then you think about what are the worst case scenarios that we hope never happen, but boy, we better not have to work that on the fly. Crisis situations, I think, are the time when PR pros really step up to the plate and they harness multidisciplinary responses. And that's something we're going to talk about a lot. Sports is a world where crises are as plentiful as they are unique. unique. I think you have to remember that a sports team is a business, first and foremost. And we are not crisis proof. And I would argue, even if you're playing well on the field, you're still going to be held accountable for that guy that does something horrible. Please welcome to the stage our first speaker, who's the Chief National Affairs and Justice Correspondent of CBS News, Jeff Pugaz. Jennifer Gillio, SVP and CCO of the Washington Nationals. The host of All Things Considered, NPR's Juana Summers. Gene Medina, the CCO of the Washington Commanders. Dean Acosta, who's SVP and CCO of Lockheed Martin, also former head of comms at NASA. Jason Reed, who's a senior NFL writer from Manscaping ESPN. Steve Honig, founder of the Honig Company, and Cindy Berger, who's chairman of RNCPMK and a member of the PRW Call of Fame. I hope you'll come away from today with some real insights that you can take into your day-to-day work, some new connections with your peers who face the same issues as you every day. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the PR Week, recorded live in Washington, D.C. at PR Week's inaugural Crisis Comms Conference. I'm Frank Washcook, executive editor at PR Week, and today's show will feature sounds from the stage as well as a few conversations with speakers right after they stepped off stage and into our podcast space live at the event. Our day started with a keynote from Jeff Pergays, chief national affairs and justice correspondent at CBS News. I think part of the reason... Uh, CBS allows me to do this kind of thing is because I never, I never hold back. I don't have much of a voice these days, but I use it as much as I can. And what I will say is the, the election of Barack Obama um, certainly upset some people. You, you recall that people used to say when he was elected, you know, everybody had tears in their eyes. They were saying, oh, we live in a post-racial society. And I think many of us rejoiced, oh, that's great, that's fantastic. But it, it stirred some people up, frankly. And then you had uh, President Trump, who came on the scene and sort of allowed the people who have this... Um, a diff- let's put it this way. I'm not going to get too political. Uh, but they have a different view of what America should be. You know, so he gave them license to talk. Then you also had the Supreme Court with all these very important cases. Um, it started making these rulings. You had very divisive Supreme Court hearings. You have the media. And, you know, (laughs) as as far as CPS is concerned, obviously I'm biased. I know what we do there. I know the, the checks and balances that we have in place. But there are some other news organizations who... 
in, instead of broadcasting the facts, they broadcast a lot of opinion. And so the American people, in this time when they're looking for people to trust, they don't know who to look to. They don't know who to trust. Because you have politicians attacking the media, you know, members of the media presenting a less than impartial picture of what is going on in the country. And so the American people, unlike when uh, Walter Cronkite was the anchor, they don't know what to believe. I, I think that's part of the problem. Juana Summers, the host of All Things Considered on NPR, was our second keynote of the morning. I will say for me, as someone who came into the job of hosting a national radio show, one of the things I think about is the fact that most people my age, people who are under 35 years old, they're not sitting in their cars, driving around, turning on the radio at 4 p.m. Eastern to listen to our show, right? So we've got to meet those people where they are. And where those people are, because it's where I am, I know, it's on our phones, it's on these devices that are in our hands, it's on our computers when we're supposed to be working, and instead we're scrolling through social media. So you've got to think about reaching the audience where it is in a way that is authentic to the platform. So when I'm thinking about my own personal engagement on social media, for example, I want to be fun. I want to let some personality in. I want to be thoughtful about the things I choose to tweet to tweet or to post on Facebook or to post on Snapchat. For example, if you listened to our show yesterday, we had a video games reporter from the Washington Post, Gene Park, on who did this amazing conversation with us about the Super Mario movie, which is, of course, a huge blockbuster. And he talked about the evolution of the character of Princess Peach over decades in the Mario franchise. And I know that's the kind of conversation that some people may roll their eyes at, but a person who maybe isn't a typical listener to my show might be really hooked on. So I knew that that was something that I wanted to make sure was showing up on my social platforms. And then the other part of this that I think a lot about is how we use these platforms in this age where we are, again, a gift and a curse. We're combating misinformation and disinformation. How are we using these platforms reliably to gain information? So I'm always checking and rechecking. Those blue checks don't quite mean what they used to anymore. So is this verified account someone who has paid for Twitter Blue or is it actually an authoritative source of information? It requires us to do more work as we source our stories to make sure that the views and the information that we're platforming, whether it comes from Twitter or elsewhere, that it's actually the person that it purports to be. And so we've got to do that checking and rechecking and making sure that we're always making sure that we're giving our audiences trust, trusted, reliable, correct information or else they don't come back to us. Yeah, it's interesting um, how you check facts these days. I remember when I first came in journalism, you'd, I was at a newspaper, you'd go down and look physically at the back copies of the paper. And it was it was it took a long time. There was no internet. And um, do you feel we're almost going back to a stage where we're going to have to spend a lot more... We got a bit blasé about checking facts in the media industry. And do we need to reassess that? You mentioned um, misinformation, disinformation, AI. There's all sorts of very credible-looking content and activations out there but a lot of it's not true so how are you approaching that as a as a you know as a person personally as a journalist but also as a media organization Sure. So I will just say, as as a journalist myself, I still tend to be a little bit old school. When I get scripts, if I have time, I will still go through, if I'm writing my own script, and circle every proper noun, circle every fact that's a statistic or a dollar amount or something like that. And I'm still going back and actually Googling it and checking it, which I realize in a 24-7 news environment, you don't always have the opportunity to do, but I certainly try. And I think for us as an organization at NPR, we realize that nothing is more valuable to us than the trust that the public has placed in us to help 
give them context and news and analysis in what I believe is an incredibly confusing at times media ecosystem where it is hard to know what is fact and what is fiction. So we take that really seriously. I think that's why we have so many checks and balances. Just by way of example on our show, if say I'm interviewing you on my show tonight, there is a producer who is tasked with helping to put together that script. There is an editor who's going to be involved in that scripting process. There is a line editor and a line producer who are the last sets of eyes and ears on any piece that goes on to our show that is pre-recorded. And we're constantly taking in a wealth of information. If I'm talking to you, I'm probably talking to David Falkenflick, our media reporter, about what I should know about you and what I should be asking you on any oh. given day. So I say that all to say that I feel like we have built up a system at NPR that gives us our best possible chance at giving the audience truthful and reliable information. And the other thing I think about a lot too is the fact that we want to be competitive. We want to break news. We want to get in there and best our colleagues, but we're also dedicated to getting the story right. And it's one of the reasons I love working at NPR. We don't go to air with things, with reporting that we can't trust. And I think that's one of the reasons why people have so much trust in us. Yeah, there has there has been a race to the bottom. It seems like some some you know very well known outlets are putting things out there for that reason, maybe without doing some of the due diligence. You mentioned podcasting. What have you learned about the way people consume in that format? You know, versus a sort of live streaming or a, a live news show, and how do you adapt the content for that? So one of the things I love, so for, by way of explanation, I'll think, I host the show All Things Considered, which airs on your radio, and then we have a podcast called Consider This. And every day that podcast dives into one topic in the news. Oftentimes it's reporting that you may have heard on our show. We also bring in reporting from across the NPR network, including our member station reporters and correspondents, and bring that into the conversation. So, but those those are very targeted episodes. So you may not listen to Consider This every day and that's okay, but maybe you hear that great Mario interview or recently I hosted an episode that included a round table with women whose families had been touched by police violence and police brutality. Those are two very different topics. You might not dip in both. We understand that listeners aren't necessarily going to make every single podcast a habit. Sometimes there are certain topics that they're attracted to. The other thing that I'm constantly thinking about is the fact that we're living in an information ecosystem where people's time is incredibly valuable. So I am thinking about the first 30 seconds, the first 60 seconds, the first minute, the top, what we call the topper of our podcast episodes. What am I bringing that listener in that first 30 seconds that keeps them listening, that doesn't have them hitting skip when they're driving in their car or whatever it is they're doing, or that gets them if they pull up to the grocery store and they're about to get out of their car that either gets them to keep listening in that moment or to come back when they finish doing their shopping and turns my podcast back on. So we're really thinking critically about attention spans. We're also thinking about the language we use and the way that we talk to listeners, which I think is incredibly important. I tend to think, um, this is based on audience research, and I also tend to believe this just as a person who loves to listen to podcasts. People want to hear humans that sound like them. You want to hear a person that you can imagine going out and having a cup of coffee or a drink with at some point. So I think that I, I want to make sure that we always sound like humans and just like a conversation between smart, curious people. It doesn't always have to be the formal stay-at news reader who has a very low inflection is just reading off their script all the time. Yeah, got it. Um, and what's, what would your advice be to PR professionals who are pitching uh, NPR and, and your show specifically, um, especially in this sort of modern age? That sounded like a, the podcast is more feature style. So are there opportunities there for uh, good pitches and what makes a good pitch? 
Yeah. So I think what stands out to me, um, I get a million pitches and I probably only respond to a couple. I think in terms of pitches that have stood out to me recently, um, making sure that it's timely, first of all. And I do get a lot of pitches, for example, for books or entertainment um, pieces of entertainment, TV shows and movies. And sometimes I'll get pitches two weeks after something's come out. That's not something we're usually likely to act on. I think doing your homework and making sure it hasn't been covered elsewhere. If we've already done a big interview with a person of interest, say on Morning Edition, we're, we, we're all one newsroom. So we're more likely to rerun a conversation or parts of a conversation that someone's aired on Morning Edition or on Weekend Edition rather than redoing an interview for our audience. It's just not a good use of resources. And I think doing a little homework on who you're pitching. Uh, for me, for example, if you look at my body of work, I'm a big sports nerd. So those are pitches that can often land with me. Um, I'm really interested in bringing underrepresented voices to our air. So those are things that typically land. So I think just knowing the person that you're picking, pitching and the format of the show. So for example, I may not be able to run an entire episode of a podcast you're representing, but I might be able to bring on the creator of that podcast and play a couple clips of what they're doing. So I think it's that, that relevance, that immediacy and timeliness, making sure that you're pitching us well in advance. And then remembering we're a seven day a week show. We run two hours a day on the weekdays, an hour a week on the weekends. And those weekend shows in particular, we, we get different audiences for each. So doing a little bit of research on the audience too and what really works for them. We're a general interest show. We try to do things that will surprise people, um, enlighten them, make them consider a new perspective on a topic. So those are the kind of things that work well for us. And oftentimes I think it's also great. Um, something I always tell people, it's great to pitch me, but if something's on a niche topic, say you've got a great pitch on cybersecurity. I'm a good pitch. Our cybersecurity correspondent, Jenna McLaughlin, is a much better pitch because she's going to be able to get right to the heart of that story. And chances are, if I'm somewhat interested in it, I'm going to send it to her or the subject matter expert anyway. I also grabbed a few of our panelists for some offstage conversations afterwards. Really excited about this next session. It's called Reach for the Stars. And it's Dina Costa, who's SVP and CCO of Lockheed Martin, also former head of comms at NASA. Um, a question from the audience. What's an example of a crisis that you hadn't planned for and how did you handle it? Um, wow. I will tell you, uh, when I was at NASA, I did not plan for a um an astronaut triangle love triangle where um an astronaut would wear a diaper to drive all the way down to florida and not have to go to the bathroom or stop to go to the bathroom that was not on, in fact it was funny i remember i got that call on a sunday night and i was i was I literally thought somebody was pranking me i'm like come on no 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 this is you guys are pulling my leg and they're like no no this is what happened and you know I want to be careful here. I was not um, the natural inclination, particularly with our the, the NASA astronaut office, was like, oh, we don't want to talk about this. Like it was really like almost back to the Challenger days where let's circle the wagons. We need to protect the personalities. I'm like, BS. We got to protect the agency. Like this is crazy town, and it's going to be seen as crazy town. And nothing we can do to protect the personality. So let's protect the agency. And we were full board and completely transparent on what we talked about. You know, everybody was on uh, administrative leave until we could, you know, do a full investigation. We shared all that information. Several of the astronauts that were involved were no longer astronauts. So that's kind of what you had to play. But that was definitely 
one that was not in the scenario planning book. Uh, boy, on a bad day, this would look like this. Yeah, that that's the thing. It's interesting, and I, I don't mean to make light of it, but um, I think that's where, as, as communicators, you really have to think through what your core principles are. What are the tenets that are going to drive you, no matter what the scenario is, because you're never going to be able to plan for everything, right? Hence the, the, the astronaut love triangle. Um, so you have to really think about what is going to drive your, you know, your beliefs, your team, what you can um, stay true to. You know, if you work for a publicly traded company, what are your corporate values and make sure that that stands front and center. So it's those types of things that you need to make sure, you know, timeliness, uh, all of the elements that we know are in our playbook that has to be there front and center as the foundation. And then everything else will play out where, however it plays out. And you just have to stay true to your principles. Frank Washcook from PR Week back with Dean Acosta. He is SVP and Chief Communications Officer at Lockheed Martin. I just listened to some of your panel. And I, I have to say, you seem to have what's one of the more uh, both exhilarating and terrifying jobs out there, <laughs> huh? Would you agree with that? I think that's a perfect definition yeah. of, of my job and my experiences, right? When you're a press secretary at NASA and you have to deal with human life, yes, that seems to always be a topic that uh, folks want to talk about. And how do you plan for a launch when you have humans on top of a rocket, but what could possibly go wrong? Right. And uh, and so it's good to talk about that. And now at Lockheed Martin, we, we build the product, the Orion spacecraft that goes yeah. on top of the rocket. And, you know, it, when you have something that has the Lockheed Martin star on it, now you have to really think about reputational risk and, you know, what it means for the company and the country. But there's a lot of pluses to that as well. And so... I feel very blessed to have the role that I have. I work with a lot of really smart people and uh, we're able to manage through it. So it sounds like you are planning for a lot of the same things, but you probably have to be a lot more concerned about shareholders and things like that as well, which is a whole other world, yes, right? Completely, right? Yeah. So when you work at a, a, a government agency like NASA, there's a different kind of shareholders, right? right? You have congressional leaders, you have stakeholders in, in the different uh uh, congressional districts in which you operate, but as a publicly traded company, yeah, people own your stock and they expect you to behave and act a certain way and do the right things. And so, yeah, you, there's it's a little different uh, approach, but very much uh, have to be mindful of that uh, as you think about big events like Artemis Two that yeah. will be coming up next year with humans on top that now we have to really work with our NASA uh, counterpart, our, our customer, and making sure that we are in sync and collaborative in how we plan for a potential crisis. Or I, I want to come back to that in a second, but one thing that kept occurring to me while, while you were on stage is how do you plan for this just vast quantity of unknowns that could happen at any time during a space mission, whether manned or unmanned? Uh, it, it's just the, the the number of things that could happen, both good and bad, are just are, you know, it's it's innumerable. So how do you plan for it all? Yeah, you know, I shared a little bit of that during the panel, right? It, we really approach. I work with a bunch of engineers and accountants, right? Yeah. And engineers talk about a risk matrix, and they literally have a quad chart that they draw out, and I, and we do the same thing for our crisis communications planning. And you think about. What are the most likely scenarios that would happen in a in a launch for for you know for NASA as an example? And you think through about things that are not as catastrophic when you think about 
a scrub. That's when you know mm-hmm. they stop the launch countdown and you and you miss the window and you have to do it another day. Or weather comes in and you and you also so every time you launch, you have a certain window in which you can launch to reach space. Yeah. And if any scenario or variable pops up, then it you scrub for the day and you have to do it the next day of the of the launch window. But then you get to situations that, uh, so when you, you know, that's what we do. We plan for those. And how do you fill the time? How do you make sure you show the agency or as a, as a customer, Lockheed Martin, how do we help the agency shine during those moments? And that's where you really can talk about process and procedure, show off your subject matter experts to be able to talk about the mission yeah. and how they plan. But then you have to think about, as part of your risk matrix, what are the worst things that could happen? What are the what are the catastrophic things? And you better have plans for that. And then you realize that once you plan for the most likely and the worst case, then anything that happens in between you're able to adapt and be agile mm. and you just stay to your core principles of, you know, whatever those are, whether they're your corporate values, whether they're um, timeliness and uh, true information, validation of information, making sure that you're controlling the narrative. All of those things factor in. And as long as you stay true to those principles and plan for most likely and worst case, most of the time you'll be covered. I do want to talk about Artemis too, because I, I think that NASA rolled out the crew very well, very effectively, uh, introduced them to, you know, broad range of people from, you know, the work at the Final Four to getting them on the morning shows to all of those different things um, and going, you know, well beyond, um, if I'm allowed to say science nerds, but the general public, right? And making making these folks household names. Um what are you most excited about? And did you did you have any role in that? Did you what was Lockheed's role in role? Yeah, in that? Well, we, we play a role only that we build the spacecraft in which they're going to to be in, mm-hmm. um, and we work very closely with our NASA counterparts. I would totally completely agree with you. They did that was probably a playbook on how to roll yeah. out personalities. Right, it, it almost. Harken back to the Apollo days, right? When you had the Fantastic right. Seven and everybody, they were household names and they're on the cover of Life magazine. Now a very different era, but one and still that we want to, you know, really get the American public and the world behind going back to the moon and, you know, potentially uh, onto Mars. And it starts here. And I thought they did an excellent job in rolling that out, making it about the personalities, who these astronauts were as humans, where they came from. Um, and then the the effectiveness in which the channels they thought about how to place them, very unconventional channels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and I think that was super smart. And we play a role in amplifying and helping and making sure that we're there for the agency. But that that total credit goes to NASA and how they thought about that completely outside the box. All right, Dean, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Cindy Berger was chairman of RNC PMK and a member of the PRE Call of Fame. All right. So fresh off stage, we're here with Cindy Berger. Cindy, you're, you're a legend in entertainment, communications, crisis communications, publicity. Um, one thing you mentioned in your panel that was really interesting is that celebrities can be larger than life people, and it's different than dealing with different types of crises. How is it different than a normal corporate crisis or uh, anything like that? Um, when you're dealing with a celebrity crisis, it can impact the consumer market. When it, uh, when I talked about the Dixie Chicks, uh, they were embarking on a $65 million sold out tour. Again, it was sold out, but they also had an album 
uh, that was out. So uh, their words impacted the sales of uh, the record sales and, and CD sales at the time. One thing I'm I'm really curious about is, is you, you think about traditional celebrities and you have this whole new generation of, of influencers. Um, what are your thoughts on this in terms of, um, you know, the role they play in the celebrity world and how it is dealing with them? And they have their own crises. And of course, we're talking about this this week with the, the Bud Light, Dylan Mulvaney situation happening as well. Not really familiar with that situation, but I, I think... You know, when you put yourself out there, you have to be prepared for the naysayers. And most celebrities are prepared. They're prepared for when a um, a, a critic is reviewing their film, when someone goes to see their play, whatever it is, they're prepared for that. The average person who is going on social media and then becomes a troll and everyone has a comment You know, this is what I tell clients. Don't read everything. Mm -hmm. There is so much out there. Don't read reviews. Don't read social media. Don't read comments. The worst thing ever are comments. You mentioned sometimes it's important, even though the news cycle moves so fast, to just step back and take a pause. I was hoping you could expand on that a little bit. Uh, That's the most important thing is don't rush into anything. Pause. I've always said this. I tell this to staff and clients. Uh, Take a beat. Pause. Think breathe and then uh, lay out a plan and a strategy that is going to work. And the most important thing in coming up with a plan and a strategy is it has to be authentic. The public is very smart. Public is also forgiving. And if you're honest and you've made a mistake, own it. Um, But I think the most important thing is uh, honesty, integrity, and authenticity. Last question. What do you make of all of the changes in media over the past five to 10 years? And how has it affected what you do and what your clients want? Uh, It's nonstop and it's exhausting. Um, And you have to understand that you cannot control everything. And clickbait is a terrible, terrible disease because it spreads when something gets printed in the Daily Mail in the UK and it's picked up here on radar or whatever, that's meant to be used as clickbait. So um, I always tell people, one, don't read everything. Two, don't believe everything that you read. And three, if you're going to speak, speak in a soundbite. Uh, speak uh, so that you can be edited properly the way you want to be edited. All right, Cindy Berger, thanks very much for joining us. You're very welcome. I think it's a great thing when athletes want to engage, you know, on, on social media platforms, uh, but it's also an area where there can be, there's a lot of danger for the athletes and for the teams. And uh, again, I'm not in that space anymore where I cover one team on a daily basis, but even, you know, bouncing around the country covering, the, you know, the entire NFL, I try to be mindful of the fact that, okay, let's not just go in here and attack. Let's, let's try to get an understanding. Now, if you if you give a person a chance to speak and they still articulate a position that's just wrongheaded, you know, you have to write about that. OK, it's Frank Washcook, executive editor of PR Week. And I'm here with Jason Reed, senior NFL reporter at ESPN. And Jason, I noticed you were getting mobbed a little bit on the way over to the podcasting room at, at PR Week's first crisis conference. It's like people want to know what you think about the NFL or something. Yeah, it's um, you know, I always enjoy when I speak or I'm on a panel yeah. because you know, you see 
how much people really are interested in the NFL. I mean, it's, it's the biggest sport in our country. It dominates American popular culture. And so I always like to build in time, uh, even after the panel discussions, uh, even after the Q&As, to you know, take time if anybody wants to talk about anything. And uh, a few people want to talk about a few things. Yeah, well, we're glad you're here. Um, talk to us just a little bit from your, your experience. Um, what makes sports crises unique? in terms of that versus political crises, corporate crises, anything like that? Well, you know, I think it's inherently different from the standpoint of, you know, pol- politics or business crises, uh, politics in those arenas. Yeah, there, there are people who obviously are interested in those things. Mm-hmm. But the NFL, you know, as I mentioned, it, it dominates American popular culture. Like, you know, more people are going to be interested if the biggest star in the NFL is involved in uh, you know, a domestic violence crisis or um, is involved in a, in a financial, in a, in, a, in a personal business crisis. There's going to be a lot more eyeball, eyeballs, so to speak, on those stories. There are going to be more people looking at it on social media, more people listening to it on the radio, just because, you know, not everyone is into politics yeah. and not everyone has a real understanding of, of, of business. So, yeah, there could be, you know, if some major iconic uh, brand in the business world, something happens, you have people going to be interested. But if something happens in the NFL, there's just so much more of a nationwide interest in it. Yeah. Um, and, and I think to a large degree, the same thing goes with the NBA, uh, Major League Baseball, hockey uh, and the NHL. Because the the four major sports in this country, like the the following is just so enormous. And, you know, I take it to the NFL because that's what I've been covering for a long time. And the the biggest stars in the NFL are the biggest stars in this country. You can talk about entertainment, you know, uh, music, films, like they rival those people at the top of those fields. So, yes, because of the intense interest in sports in this country, that's why it's different. Or if you have a situation with like Aaron Rodgers right now, switching teams, one market to another, it's maybe not a crisis, perhaps, but maybe if you're a Green Bay fan, it's a big crisis. I don't know. But, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's not a crisis per se. Yeah. But. It is something that's going to garner incredible interest. And I think that's what we're really talking about here. Things that can garner incredible interest that there may be a sect of the population that's not happy about it. Yeah. And clearly, Green Bay fans are not happy about this situation. Of course, of course. How do you think that the teams themselves or the NFL as an organization tend to respond to things that, that maybe they are they can't prepare for, things that are uh, off script, so to speak? Well, you know, I was just thinking about this um, not too long ago. Think about where the NFL was when Colin Kaepernick first decided to sit in the kneel to take a stand against police police brutality and, uh, you know, social injustice. Then think about the Super Bowl in Los Angeles last year. You had all the biggest hip hop stars performing there. Now, when Colin Kaepernick took his stand, you know, the the major black entertainers in the hip hop world, they said they wanted nothing to do with the NFL. Right. And then you go from that to to many of the most iconic names performing at the Super Bowl. So I, I say that to say I think the NFL handles things very well. Yeah. Because you see what had happened in that what six seven year period, the NFL partnered with players to address social justice issues. The players stopped protesting. Then the NFL partnered with with Jay Z, who's you know one of the biggest entertainment moguls on the planet 
for Jay-Z to handle their entertainment. And all of a sudden, all of the people who didn't want anything to do with the NFL are back in the NFL in terms of performing. So I think the NFL handles things very well. Now, the flip side of that is people would say, well, they just bought um, people re-engaging. But I mean, that's whether you like it or not, part of how you deal with crises is getting people to come back to you. Right. So, you know, uh, it, it is what it is. But I from that from that standpoint, you'd have to say they handle things very effectively. Yeah. And you, you mentioned something during your panel that I thought was really interesting. And, and I think it was Joe Gibbs that you mentioned mm-hmm. about how at some point an organization has to go beyond, you know, wins and losses and success on the field and, and hold themselves to a higher standard. Maybe you can expand on that a little bit. Well, we were talking about the the whole thing about does winning trump everything else right you know does winning if you win will that render everything else you do meaningless in terms of problems that you might have from a public facing standpoint and i just i just recall this conversation i had with coach gibbs uh he's who's an nfl hall of famer led the led, they were called the redskins when he coached the team led them to three super bowl championships and you know he basically walked on water in washington sure. see but the point he made to me was that yeah, you know, the fact that he's afforded all this goodwill because of the winning, he still doesn't want to have situations where players are not conducting themselves or anybody in the organization, not just players, right. conducting themselves in a manner that he can be proud of leading the organization. So it really starts within. It's like any it's like good leadership in anything in, in, in the corporate world, in the political world. You have to have people at the top who set a higher standard and that regardless of how successful you are, you are living to a certain code mm-hmm. or at least attempting to. Fair enough, Jason. Big fan of your work. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. We look forward to seeing you next year at the PR Week Crisis Comms Conference. And for more information on this year's event, visit PRWeekUSCrisisComs.com.